We are in week four of our series, Bizarre Bible, and we've been looking at difficult passages in the scripture, namely for this reason, is that one of the biggest roadblocks to faith in the modern world is the actual content of the Bible. People you might have heard say something like, I don't know if I believe in God, but even if I did, I could never worship and love the God as depicted in your book, in the Bible. And then they might have a follow-up question, something along the lines, I mean, have you even read the Bible? They go, like, I I know you've been a Christian, you go to church, but have you actually, do you know the stuff that's in your Bible? Science fiction author and professor Isaac Asimov said, properly read, the Bible is the most potent force for atheism ever conceived. In other words, if you would just read the actual Bible and hear the stories, you you wouldn't believe in God, or you certainly wouldn't worship the God that's in those scriptures. And so what we've done every week is look at some of the most bizarre and difficult passages and hopefully try to demonstrate that the Bible always knows what it's doing, and there's certainly some passages that shock you when you read them, but if you trust the scripture, you trust where it's leading you, you keep digging and digging and digging, and you're gonna find again and again, the Bible knows what it's doing, there's more going on, there's more here. And so today we're gonna read another story, and it's the first one in the New Testament. Uh, which is also kind of answering another accusation because oftentimes a modern skeptical person might say something like, um, man, I know you're a Christian stuff, but you, you primarily just read the New Testament like the God of the New Testament, but the God of the Old Testament, man, that guy will kill you. He'll take you out. Like he's vindictive, he's angry, he's jealous. And so there's this kind of accusation that the God of the Old Testament is angry God and the New Testament God is nice guy, like passive pushover God. And so uh, I want to show you today that uh, the the, the God of the Old Testament is certainly still the God of the New Testament. They're They're the same person. And so this is the first time we'll be looking at a story in the New Testament. And this is in the book of Acts, which serves as part two to the Gospel of Luke. The New Testament begins with four biographies of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke, the third gospel, is this biography of Jesus, but then Luke writes part two, which is a biography of the early church. So Jesus dies, resurrects, ascends into heaven, and he begins the church, and Luke gives us a historical account of what was going on in the early church. This is uh, Acts chapter five, very early. We're at like the birth of the church. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. 
Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So you might be saying like, oh man, I I thought this is the New Testament. I thought that whole God taking people out stuff was done with. No, total good news. God still takes people out in the Old and the New Testament. Same guy, same God, same person. Um, The problem with this text is that when people read it, 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 it can appear as if they're like killed for a minor infraction. Like they're, they're doing something good. They sold Ananias and Sapphira, have property, they sell it and want to give it to the Lord, but they don't give all of it. And so it kind of seems like, man, they just didn't give all of it, but who, they, they certainly still gave and God kills them. On top of that, it's really easy to manipulate this passage. You know, and, and it's like sometimes to manipulate and trying to get people to give. You may tell stories like this and say, look, you need to give it all to God. Let me read you a story about someone who didn't give it all to God. You know, and they what are you doing? Like, what are you doing today? Are you giving it all to God? And it's like, are you trying to get me to like sell my, my PS5? To, to like, and you're, are you kind of, because the implication is that Like, God can kill you for this. And so it's really easy to sort of manipulate and and get this to make almost guilt people into giving. Um, So what what is going on? This story, like many of the stories we encounter in Scripture, is obviously compressing a much larger story. Like, I'm sure there's a, like, a 10 episode podcast or a two and a half hour movie that could, like, recall like the mystery of Ananias and Sapphira and their deaths type of thing. But you get 10 verses, technically 11. 11 verses. And so it's not going to include every detail, but the details that it does include are going to be like very, very important. And so what I want to do is look at some of these details and then also look at what comes before and after in this story. So what occurs right before the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Because Luke, who's writing Acts, has tons of stories to tell. This is the beginning of the church. There's no shortage of amazing things that he could talk to you about. But he chooses to tell you about Ananias and Sapphira, and he chooses to tell you that story right before he tells you this. Acts chapter 4, 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." Look at verse one. This is, this is an interesting way to describe something. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart. Okay. When you read that sentence, you don't anticipate the number one. Like, read it again. Now, the full number of those who believed was 5,142. 
You, you think it should focus on the actual full number of those who believe, like giving an account for how many, but the full number of those who believe, it's one. Because it's describing the, the unity. There is a spirit of unity that is grabbing a hold of the first Christians. And that spirit of unity leads to a spirit of generosity. People are becoming Christians and there's poor people, there's rich people and everyone's coming together and those who have a lot, those who have wealth and excess are going, what do we do to make sure there's no one in need? Now again, this is, um, by ancient standards, it's not like they're buying you vacations or something like that, uh, but they're making sure they're, everyone has food, everyone's gonna have shelter, there's enough resources within God's community so that every Christian can have food and shelter. We're gonna take care of each other. And this spirit of generosity is so huge and important that people are actually beginning to sell property to make sure all of these Christians, this new family of God, are cared for. It's a powerful scene. Powerful scene. Now, Luke gives us this zoomed out view of this first church, the early Christians. And then immediately after this, he's gonna do a zoomed in view and give you an example with some details of the type of generosity that's taking place. He says, thus, Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So zoomed out view, zoomed in, here's an example of someone's extreme generosity. Okay. Now remember, these stories are told like in 10 verses. You don't get all the details, but what details you do get are important. So what are we told about this guy Barnabas? He's a Levite. Now, if you're familiar with the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, you know something about Levites. If you're not familiar, that's okay. One of the themes of this series has been uh, the Bible can be difficult sometimes, but the more you keep reading, the more you learn, and the more you learn, and the more you will be able to understand other stories that are referencing other stories. So what do you know about a Levite? Levites are the priestly line in Scripture. There's 12 tribes of Israel, and the Levites form the priestly line. Now, way back in the Torah, in the, at the beginning of the scriptures, God divides up the Holy Land, the Promised Land, and gives up land allotments to the 12 tribes of Israel. But there's one tribe that doesn't get a land allotment. Do you remember what tribe that is? It's the priestly line, the Levites, because their inheritance is not the land, their inheritance is the Lord. Now, there's a couple exceptions to that rule. In Joshua chapter seven, it maps out how sometimes they could... Um, have something in a city or have some pasture land that's obviously being raised for food. There's some exceptions, all of that. But the idea is that Levites don't have land that they possess, which is an interesting detail that this man has a field, which can tell you one of a, a number of things. We can't be certain, but this might be like his burial land, like the place that he's going to be buried with his family and he's selling the future burial place. Or it could mean that things have gotten so off track in Israel that the Levites and priests, they, they own land. They don't care. They got all kinds of land. The point is, however, that this Levite, who didn't have an allotment of land given to him originally, sells this field and gives it to the Lord. Gives it to the growth of the church. So, so this is important. There is a priest, a Barnabas, a Levite, or someone of the priestly line, a Levite, who sells a filled 
for the building up of the body of Christ. Let's take that with us now to the original Ananias and Sapphira story. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Okay, really important. When are we? When are we? We're in this weird transitional state in biblical history. Because in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, where did God uniquely manifest and reveal his presence? In the temple, right? In Jerusalem, God is uniquely manifesting his spirit. The glory of God is residing there with his people. The temple will be destroyed in 70 AD, but that's still a few decades into the future of when this event occurs. So you still have the temple where the spirit of God is said to be dwelling, but now you have this church, the first church, the first Christians. And what is the language they are using for themselves and their gathering? Paul says, a leader in the early church says, don't you know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? So individual believers are now being called temples of the Holy Spirit. And Paul also tells the believers that they are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But in another section, you don't see it in English, but in Greek, he uses the second person plural to say that you all, like y'all, you all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So it's a both and. The gathered corporate body, the saints coming together, is the temple of the Holy Spirit and the individual believer has the Spirit of God living in them. Which is really interesting though, because you're using that type of language while for a few decades, that, that temple's still standing there. So the church at this point is like this, this new, pristine, kind of uncorrupted, holy community that is functioning as temples of the spirit of the living God. Now you see the logic here. Because part of Peter's question is, you haven't lied just to man, you've lied to God. Now, sometimes when you read scripture, you just go, okay, it's just a hymn, it's Peter's way of saying this is a big deal. No, there's theological reasons why that is recorded. Because the gathering of the saints, the corporate body of Christ, this is temple language. This is where God lives and dwells among his people. So when you lie to the church, it's, it's, a, it's a crime against the body the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the place where the Spirit of God is uniquely manifesting his presence. The other important note is um, the church is like, it's a newborn baby right now. It's just like, just a few chapters earlier is the birth of the church. And so with a newborn baby, a, a, a a new life, there is extra care and protection that's needed. So you're in this like infancy stage, you have this, this kind of uncorrupted community that's been overtaken by a spirit of unity and generosity. And you have this guy, Ananias, come in. Who, by the way, his name, it's recorded um, in the New Testament Greek, but it's a, it's a Hebrew name, it's based in Hebrew, and it means something like Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh gives grace. 
So you have this guy, Ananias, come in, and he says, you know, here's the money. Here's all of it. We sold some property, and we're giving it all to the church. Now, focus in on Peter's questions, because they're revealing. Ananias, verse 3. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained and sold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, the, the generosity that's taking place, it's not forced. It's not an obligation. Sometimes people will do that. They, they, will, they will say, look at the early church, you gave it, you gave it all. It, it is not a forced obligation type of thing. The spirit of generosity so takes over the first Christians that they're going like, how could I not give to support the mission of the church? I have Christ, my great treasure. And so they are a generous people, but this guy comes along and we don't get all the motivation. We don't know his inner motivation. We don't know what scheme or plot, like why did he do this in the manner that he did? All we know is that he didn't have to do anything, but he did something and lied about it to the church. Again, we don't know his motivation, the plot, the schemes, but you know there is a next level type of evil occurring here. Like this is grave, serious sin. And Luke lets us know this. How does he let us know this? He says, why have you been filled with Satan? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Now, in the New Testament, at the birth of the church in the book of Acts, what is filling up new Christians? You are filled with the Holy Spirit. But the language that Peter adopts is not you're being filled up with the Holy Spirit. You're filled up with Satan. Satan has entered into you. Now, remember, Acts is part two to Luke. Is there anywhere else in Luke or Acts where Luke employs this language of Satan entering into somebody? Do you remember? Judas. This is Judas-like, Satan-like language. Luke 22. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Huh. So the last time you hear about Satan entering into somebody, it's, in to, it's entering into Judas. So Luke is drawing these images back to us. Like what, what's occurring with Ananias is a, is a next level type of evil. Luke also tells us in Acts chapter one what happened after the betrayal. Speaking of Judas, he says, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akel Dema, that is, filled of blood. All right, so how is the Ananias and Sapphira story prepped? with the story of a man 
Barnabas, who sells land in order that he might build up the body of Christ. He sells a field in order that he might build up the body of Christ. And now you have the Satan-like language being used, and you have the counter story of Judas, who does not sell a field in order to build up the body of Christ. He acquires a field in order to tear down the body of Christ. So Barnabas and Judas and Ananias and Sapphira, all of their stories are having the same images and illusions, and they're all interacting with each other. Barnabas is the faithful man who gives up his field in order to build the body of Christ. Judas, the betrayer, acquires something in order to destroy the body of Christ. So what Luke is doing is he wants you to see the sin of Ananias in an analogous way to the sin of Judas. They're parallel. And because of this, verse five records this. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Okay, super important. Sapphira is given opportunity to tell the truth. Among the first Christians, there is a spirit of generosity and unity, but there's also this understanding that this woman who is a wife of the guilty party stands innocent if she didn't participate in the act. In other words, she has independent moral agency. She does not incur the guilt of her husband automatically. Now, that might not sound like a big deal to you, but it's because you've had 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian values that have talked about both men and women being made in the image of God and, and the equality that comes from that. However, in the ancient world, it should not just be assumed that a wife gets to stand in defiance of her husband and say, I was not a part of that wickedness, I'm, I'm innocent, and then judgment wouldn't have happened to her. But the scriptures say, no, no, you're responsible for your own sin. So what's up with this field? Did, did you sell it for this much and did you give all of it? And she says, yeah. She's in on it, she's in on it. Peter says, how is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Now question for those of you who know the gospel of Luke. Is there anywhere else in the gospel of Luke where someone tests the Lord? Where is that language used before? All the way back in Luke chapter four when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness and at the end of his temptation by Satan, he says, you don't test the Lord. So again, do you see both Ananias and Sapphira, all the illusions, the images, the words, the phrases, are wanting, they're wanting the reader to see this is some next level evil going on. Again, we get the compressed story. We don't know their motivations. What are they doing this for? What's the plot? Is there a scheme? We don't know any of that. And Luke says it's kind of, it's frankly, it's like, it's not, a part, it's not important. What you need to see is that some grave, serious evil was entering into the church and God judged it. Immediately she fell down 
at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her besides her husband. And a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Okay, so what, what's, what's going on? Luke wants us to see that the church is in this infancy stage. It's like a baby. Needs extra care and protection. Additionally, this is the new, this is like the temple of God. There is temples of the Holy Spirit here. And so what takes place in the sacred space in time of church is, is important. On top of that, you need to begin to picture like the, the uncorrupted, pristine, holy community um, and go like, oh, this is, this is new creation. This is new temple, new creation, new life, birth of the church. And it's, it's in this like perfect state almost because there's no need among anybody, right? People are gathering the research. There's no need in the uncorrupted, pristine, holy community. But then someone enters into that scene. Does this sound familiar? Who enters into this holy, sacred community where there's no need? The serpent of old. And so there's also an allusion here to like the, the first sin of the early church. Ananias and Sapphira like an Adam, an Adam and Eve. There's, there's this, the church is in this pure state and the serpent enters in and there's a temptation. And if you listen to the words of the snake, the serpent, the Satan, what is the consequence? You shall surely so all of these, all of these things are all going on in this passage. And Luke wants you to see, this is a holy community. God has called out. It's like a baby that needs to be protected. And now Satan has entered in. And he's made this like abundantly clear if you're paying attention to the details because you have the Judas, you have these two different fields, one sold for the building up, one acquired for the destruction. You have the language of Satan entering, not the Holy Spirit feeling. You have the testing of the Lord language. And so again, we don't know all the details, but Luke is saying this is some next level evil that is creeping into the church. And because of that, God brings swift judgment. It's like, it's like a, a focused surgical removal of something that could then grow and contaminate the whole body. Now again, this makes the story make a lot more sense, but just truth be told for for modern people, even for modern Christians, anytime God acts with that type of judgment, we get uncomfortable. And the truth is, is God, God in the Old Testament and the New Testament is a perfect judge, he is righteous, and he reserves the right to execute his justice. And so you see that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it doesn't matter as a Christian if it's like, well, I don't, it's like we're called to submit to the scriptures. And God in his infinite wisdom saw fit to remove this from the first Christian's community. And he reserves the right to do that. He's, he's God. He's God. Um, to balance that, the good news is, is this story is not normative because if every time there was a grave, serious sin that took place at church, there'd be a lot more people dropping down dead. Like it'd be happening a whole lot. So this is unique in that we're in the infancy stage. This community is, is this new temple. So in one sense, it's unique and it's not normative. But 
I also want you to know that the story is telling us that God still reserves the right to take wickedness out. He's judge, he's just, he's good and fair and merciful, but he doesn't put up with evil forever. And whether it happens in this lifetime or in the next, every single human being will go before the judge and give an account. Like, that's true. And so, we recognize that God is, God is in the business of protecting his people. And the sin wasn't just a sin of lying to Peter, it was a sin against the Holy Spirit. To lie to God's people, the body of Christ, is a lie to him. This is, uh, language is similar with Paul the apostle before he becomes a Christian. He persecutes Christians and Jesus shows up and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, Paul would go, I didn't persecute you, I was just persecuting your people. And Christ's response would be, my people are my body, it's the body of Christ. You oppress and persecute God's people, it's an attack on me. You lie and you manipulate for evil, selfish gain. Ananias and Sapphira, this isn't just a lie to people at church, this is a lie to the Holy Spirit. And there's obviously something else going on for them to use this satanic-like and Judas-like imagery. So what are we to take from, from a story like this? Well, one, we ought to aspire to be like these Christians in this early church. And there's a spirit of generosity and truthfulness and fear that they have. Now first, let me just touch on all three briefly, but the, the, the spirit of generosity. It's not a forced, obligatory type of thing. It's not like, man, if Ananias, if you would have just gave 10 more bucks, you would have met the line for how much you ought to give to the Lord. Something has overtaken the first Christians. And it's this, they have found something of such value that now they can then look at their material possessions and they see them becoming more and more irrelevant. When you have something of great value, things that you used to value become less valuable in your eyes. And when you become a Christian, you get Christ, you were adopted into his family. And knowing Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus ought to make our material earthly possessions become less valuable. And so we are no longer owned, we're not seized by the grip of earthly possessions because I have Christ, I have Jesus. Man, that's, I don't care about that, I got Jesus. And so this generosity comes, it comes overflowing from the fact that now they know Jesus. They know his grace, his mercy, and forgiveness. So how could I not then be generous with earthly possessions? And so the first Christians gave, gave abundantly to the work and mission of the church. And it's a giving to the body of Christ. It's a giving to Christ. It's a giving to the Lord. So we ought to be generous people because we have a treasure that's worth more than all the gold and the silver this earth has to offer. And we demonstrate that to an unbelieving world by our generosity. Also, truthfulness marked the community. There was an absolute commitment to truth-telling. And this is incredibly important because um, for the first Christians, they were claiming they had a testimony that Christ was crucified and resurrected. Now, your words need to hold weight 
Truthful people, when they're giving testimony to something, you believe it because you know they're a truthful person. What lies do is they diminish the value of the testimony. And so for the first commitments, there is a radical commitment to truth-telling. Even if you're before a governor who's gonna throw you in prison and flog you, you tell the truth. You could be taken at your word. And so there's this first kind of sin that creeps in, and there's a lie. And it's seen as a significant, significant sin. Um, Telling the truth is a lot harder than you think. Most people don't realize how often they lie. Seriously. And you may be saying, I know, totally. All kinds of people don't realize that. For me, it kind of comes easy. Tell it like it is. I'm a truth teller. No, seriously. If you examine yourself, little things, small things, big things, sometimes rooted in insecurities, fear, jealousy, you just kind of twist the truth. Like people lie way more than we think. And so what you can do is just like try it. Try for like 30 days. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to be someone who speaks the truth. Um, and I don't mean by like if someone comes up to you and says, hey, do you like my new haircut? Like, and you don't. You're just like, no, that's horrible. I'd be like, of if all the haircuts you could have, that's like bottom two. Uh, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. But just watch it. There's little things you're doing. We lie to ourselves and to the world uh, more than we think. And then there's this thing that, that often is overlooked because, uh, again, modern people might like, not like this component, but two times it mentions the fact that a great fear fell upon the church. And this great fear, is a, it's, it's a good thing. Like we immediately go, oh no, there's fear. It's like, no, first the scriptures, the beginning of wisdom is what? Fear of the Lord. And so there's been a great disservice like in the last 50, 60, 70 years, I don't know how long, but sort of like in our cultural context in Christianity, um, whenever someone talks about fear of the Lord, there's an immediate, like, it doesn't really mean fear, it means like to have a healthy respect for, and it's like, no, and no. An ancient reader of the Proverbs would go, oh, fear of the Lord, that fear uh, roughly translates to fear. <laughs> it means fear, it means to be afraid. Now, there's unhealthy and sinful fears, for sure, certainly. But fear is your friend in many ways, if it's a healthy fear. There's disruptive, sinful types of fears, but there's healthy fears. Like if you climb up, you, you climb up Half Dome or pick your giant mountain that you've climbed 20 miles up to, and there's the cliff, you ought to have a healthy fear of the cliff before you. You know what happens when people don't have healthy fears of the cliff before them? And you know what happens every year to people who do this on the cliff? You don't want to know. Make a fall. And it's a great fall. So there is a way to have a healthy fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so what's taking place for the first Christians is they realize that this temple of the Holy Spirit thing is serious. Yes, in church and in Christ, there's joy and celebration and remembrance of the victory of Christ, but there's a weightiness to this. There's a sacredness to God's people gathering. The modern world doesn't want that category, by the way. We don't want anything transcendent or sacred or weighty. The second something becomes weighty, just watch. People start joking. They break the weightiness of it. 
There is a weightiness. There's joy, celebration, all of that. But there's, there's a weight to what we do. And we ought to approach holy, sacred things with a healthy fear. Not a sinful fear or a whack one or an unhealthy thing, but like, no, this is serious stuff. And so all of this kind of leads us to transition to what we do every week, but I'd like to just pause for a moment and focus on it. Because Paul the Apostle is going to describe uh, communion in the book of 1 Corinthians. And he's going to use many of the same themes and kind of language that we've just discussed about weight and holiness and sacredness and having a healthy fear of the Lord. So let me read to you what he says concerning communion. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And what happens if you do this communion thing in an unworthy manner? Verse 30, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul is making the claim that there are sins taking place in the church and communion is being taken in an unworthy manner, and that is such a serious thing that Paul's saying some people have actually died over this. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with this world. There is a weightiness. There's a sacred nature to the body of Christ, to the gathering of his people, to the taking of communion. And Paul gives this huge warning. Now, I want to talk about this for a moment because this is an oversimplification, but there's typically two types of people. Because you read this verse and it's like, let, examine yourself and make sure you're taking communion in a worthy manner. And so when we think about examining ourselves in a worthy manner, we go real deep inside real quick. Like we like to go in like here, go inside, and then there's a place for many of us where we have guilt and shame and we, we're concerned that, no, I have this sin in my life and I have this struggle in my life. And so you're kind of overwhelmed and there's a person type, per, type of person in this room who reads that and goes, I probably shouldn't take communion, man. And I want to tell you that for those of you who are struggling and you have sin in your life that grieves you and you're worried about guilt and shame and you think you're unworthy, this actually probably is the best thing you could do. Communion reminds you that therefore now there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You are reminded of his grace and his forgiveness in your life. Now, there's another type of person who can be in like blatant, grave, defiant sin, like shake your fist at God, defiant sin. And they'll take, they'll take the bread and the cup, man, this is, this is bread, it's, it's just juice. No, I'm just gonna do my thing and take it. That is taking in an unworthy manner. If you have grave sin in your life, you are shaking your fist in defiance to God and then you come to this with that and you take this in an unworthy manner. That is what Paul's talking about. How do we know this? Well, because prior to this, he tells you what's going on in Corinth. Corinth is filled with all a host of sins, there's sexual immorality, and as he's talking about communion, he says, some of you come to communion and you're getting drunk 
and eating all the bread, all the food, and then when others come, they show up and there's nothing left for the communion meal and you're just drunk. Now that's even worse than you think because likely what was taking place was that those who didn't have to work, the wealthy and the rich in the community, would get there for the communion celebration before anyone else because your poor people were probably working from sunup till sundown and they're working hard and maybe they just had a piece of bread that day to eat. And so the poor who have very little come to the sacred space of the new temple of, of the church and they get there and there's, there's no communion left and people are drunk and they don't have anything to eat. So people are going to church getting drunk probably off the wine that's for sacred communion and they're eating up everything and then their brothers and sisters in Christ are coming after working and have nothing. So that's a very big deal. So when people are doing this at church, you see this is a, it's a grave kind of sin. It's a shaking your fist in rebellion towards God. And if you are here today and you have grave, unrepentant sin in your life and you are just gonna take this thing in an unworthy manner, get it over with, I want to warn you that you should not take it. And I say that not simply to make a judgment, but I say that for your own good. It is not good for you to take this in an unworthy manner. And as leadership, as a church, if we become aware of some grave sin, some unrepentant, shake your fist in defiance to God, and you're coming here, we're gonna tell you, like, you shouldn't take communion. We're not gonna, we don't want you taking communion at this gathering. You're not allowed to take it. And you can say, well, that's very judgmental. Of course it's judgmental. I'm, we're trying to, per- it's good for you. It's for your own good. It's for your own good. What, it, what you should do is repent of this grave, serious sin. Stop shaking your fist in defiance to God. He is gracious and forgiving. He will forgive you. And so communion, for those of you who are struggling, you have sins, you have anxieties and fears, you're worried about this, you're worried about that. That's why we come every Sunday and take communion. This is my body, it's given for you. Our king goes and dies for us. We need that. But there is a warning. And the warning itself is a good warning because the the response to the warning is to come in. Because there was another person in the gospels who Satan asked to sift. Do you remember who this was? Peter, Satan asked to sift Peter and Peter ends up denying, betraying Jesus three times. Nevertheless, Christ the good shepherd still goes and finds the lost sheep and he draws him in and he not only forgives and restores Peter, he makes him an apostle in his church. So communion tells us about the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. So as believers, this meal is for you. If you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, that's fine, you, don't, you just don't participate. It's not a big deal. But this is for believers, whether you're struggling or you're triumphing right now. But if you are in grave sin, you ought to let this pass and examine yourself and you should repent and God will accept you and bring you in and grant you forgiveness. So let's stand as we take communion.